from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. The Substance Use Disorder Recovery Community was recognized today by lawmakers. We'll have that story later. Also, a conversation about higher education this session with the Interim Chancellor of the Higher Education Policy Commission. But first, a news update with Dave Mistich. Dave, thanks for being here. Thank you. Of course, our attention was in the House of Delegates today right. for hours and hours. They took up Senate Bill 150, the budget bill. Right. Uh, it becomes a strike and insert amendment. Tell us about that process. What right. does that mean? So the Senate, they passed their version of the budget, which at the time it, it was Senate Bill 150. It comes over to the House. And what the House does is they, they do their committee substitute. That committee substitute makes its way to the floor. Uh, and then this the 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 whatever they decide gets uh, struck out from the original bill, the Senate Bill 150, and then inserted into this bill. Uh, of course, along with that, um, we're not just looking at that particular amendment. We're looking at a host of amendments to that amendment. So today, a very long day every every year, this process. Uh, you could expect hours on the floor to debate uh, dozens, uh, if not more, amendments. Today, we, they took up 15 amendments to the strike and insert, um, and m many of them were rejected. We'll get into that a little bit more here. So, yeah. So, so tell us um, the, you know, give, paint a picture of how big this 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 budget is and the main components. What do we start with? Right. Of course, it's about 4.6 billion dollars, and that's just the state's aspect of it. We we focus on general general revenue from the state. Um, you know, there's uh, big picture. There's a lot of cuts to the governor. Some of the proposals that the governor had, uh, of course, the Milton flood wall, uh, you know, commerce, uh, the Mountaineer Challenge Academy. But actually, today that was restored, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. You mentioned the Milton flood wall. We had uh, we had delegates Linville on here, right. and 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 a, a couple folks talking about that. Um, uh, Senator Plymel. Right. Um, that was a very big thing. They've been working on it for years. It draws down federal funds for a, a flood levy. Right. That was taken out. Right, I believe so, and at least according mm -hmm. to the House Finance version. Um, you know, there was cuts to the MARC train, that, that, that commuter rail train over in the Eastern Panhandle that takes uh, people that work and, and, and play and, and enjoy their lives in D.C. from the Eastern Panhandle uh, back and forth to that metro area. Uh, big cuts to the Jobs and Hope program that, that uh, uh, Formerly known as Jim's Dream, this sort of recovery, prevention, and workplace workplace um, reentry sort of program. And the irony of that is, we'll hear a little bit more about that today. It right. was, it's Recovery Community Day, and that was one of the things featured. Right, right. And so you know, there, there was you know these big cuts. Of course, you know, there's there's some improvements, things that the bills that are passed this session, uh, and as we've noted before on the show, um, you know, the House and the Senate they can't account for some of this potential spending until that of that bill that, that calls for that spending is passed that particular chamber. So the big one on everyone's mind is this foster care bill. The House accounted, accounts for about $6.8 million in funding for this uh, bill of rights. 
um, you know, per diem payments. It's for, 16 million. Yeah, 16 million, 16.8, 16. right, mm -hmm. right, million. Um, and so th that, you know, that bill came over to the Senate and was gutted last night in committee, but the House in their version, uh, in the version of the budget that's coming back over the Senate still accounts for that foster care program at that, at that level. And so. we heard delegate after delegate say, you know, I, I support this budget and this we're, we're going to the map for. Right, this right. This is Absolutely. the priority. Absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, some big things like that, that, you know, um, Let's talk have, about some of the amendments. Right, right. So, uh, as far as the amendments, um, again, the big one that that the only one that was uh, adopted uh, was from delegate householder. Um, like I said, the, the the House Finance version, the House Finance Committee's version of this budget had cut about three point three million dollars for funding of a second, what would be a second location of the Mountaineer Challenge Academy, this paramilitary, um, you know, uh, academic program for challenged youth. Um, you know, that amendment that put the money back in the budget. So that $3.3 million is back in there and, and, and secured as far as everyone's concerned. And, you know, we pointed out the other day that uh, Senate Finance Chair Craig Blair talked about that on our show. He, he drew, drew a line on that particular item as well. So, you Probably know, I think it was encouraging for right, the right. House would, to put back in. I would say, yeah. And I think that, you know, all of that being said, everyone's happy um, at this point, it seems like. Um, there were some other amendments, though, uh, you know, the, the, the dozen plus from Democrats all rejected, mostly along party line votes. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about one um, that would have added $500,000 to the Domestic Violence Legal Services Fund. This was from Delegate Sammy Brown. She spoke on the House floor today in support of that amendment, and we'll take a little bit of time to hear her you know, discuss this amendment. Uh, her and uh, uh, finance chair, uh, uh, Eric, delegate. Eric Osler, <laughs> yeah. I, I think we hear from him first. Yep. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, here's another amendment that's hurting the health care for the needy. You know, this amendment would divert much needed funds from the Medicaid, which will be needed in the coming years. And we're trying to take a proactive stance here, which should serve to reduce the projected deficits that are currently contemplated in the governor's uh, six-year plan and save some of these programs. So for those reasons, I'm going to have to urge rejection of the gentlelady's amendment. The argument against this additional appropriation is that uh, the funds are necessary for the most vulnerable of our population, which would then be an insinuation that victims of sexual assault, victims of domestic violence aren't in fact vulnerable. Then we have an uptick in this culture. We have seen that violence has increased in the state of West Virginia and nationwide, and our neighboring states, Ohio being one of them, are now increasing their funds to the tunes of millions to make sure that their individuals are absolutely represented in the court of law. Ladies and gentlemen, part of our job here as representatives and as part of government is to help our citizens, and this would absolutely be a way to do so. Dave, uh, as you mentioned, many amendments offered uh, by Democrats, and we heard uh, House Chair, Finance Chair Eric Householder of, of Berkeley County over and over saying that very argument, that it was taking away from Medicaid and we had to secure it for what is forecast to be some troubled years down the That's road. That's right. He, he said the, the people that need it the most, I think, was uh, mm -hmm. something along those lines. And, and if you'll note, many of these um, amendments, um, you know, they're not just adding money to a particular program. They're cutting money from, from another line item in the budget. And I think 
a majority, if not uh, even more than that, many, many more than, than a majority of these amendments offered by Democrats try to take a, 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 some money away from the Medicaid surplus. So. Uh, as you said, you know, the argument against it all the time was we're going to need this down the road. Uh, there was one by uh, Delegate uh, Lavender Bow, uh, money for a um, for the drug-free moms and babies program, 200000 that went down, $8 million, uh, uh, Isaac Spinagle. Right. Uh, his amendment for coronavirus to, to go into the governor's yeah, contingency and, and fund. and you've heard a lot of conversation about this. As, as, as the conversation around this particular, um, um, you know, possible pandemic is, is had around the country and around the world, you know, Spinagle has been pushing for this. He pushed for it in the Finance Committee. Didn't work. Uh, pushing for it, you know, on the floor today as well. Uh, let's go to, uh, quickly to Delegate Boggs. He did a, uh, he offered an amendment to put $2 million into our food pantry. Uh, statewide system, and, and here is Delegate Boggs pleading his, his case. 31 million pounds of food was delivered by the two food, Second Harvest Food Pantries last year, and they're on track to deliver even more than that this year. Think about that. 32, 31, 32 million pounds of food. Folks, we can't let that sit in a warehouse. We can't let that go by if it's available on the national level for us to purchase that and then put that on the tables of the people that need it most. Again, the chairman said that would be taking away from Medicaid, and he couldn't support it. Another thing that we heard, uh, the, the Veterans Nursing Home, right. uh, was to uh, Delegate Bates wanted $14 million from excess uh, lottery funds to be uh, dedicated to that. And we heard the chairman over and over saying the House is avoiding base building spending right. um, to put something in permanently that we would have to be uh, funding from, for years to come. There was another uh, amendment you wanted to speak to. Yeah, Delegate Bates. Um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed that got discussed on the floor today was that the Supreme Court's budget, this is the first year that the legislature has the ability to decrease it up to 15% of the previous year's budget. Um, from, I think, 19 to 20, their budget was, uh, they, they voluntarily handed over $10 million. This budget gives it back to them. Uh, and with that $3.3 million for the Mountaineer Academy uh, being taken from the Supreme Court, it goes to the... Um, um, uh, Mountaineer Challenge Academy from the Supreme Court's line item, um, but Delegate Bates was calling on you know what would have become a 6.7 million dollar cut to the state Supreme Court's budget. Uh, again, it would have just taken it down to the um, same amount as last year's budget. Of course, everyone remembers that all this started back years ago with the Supreme Court impeachments. Um, but the budget, you know, it's it's they passed it on a 95 to 5 vote um, after doing all these amendments, after doing the strike and insert. And now it comes back over the Senate. They're going to take a look at where things are with some of their spending um, and with the House. Uh, there's a few other things still up in the air, like Intermediate Court of Appeals, the foster care program that's still over here in the Senate. All will impact the fiscal note. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So um, we have a few days left to session, and I'm pretty sure most of it will involve these bottom involve lines. Involve the budget. So. Dave Mistich, thank you so much. Thank you. And how has higher education fared in the House and Senate budget process so far? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first, Senate Resolution 63 passed today, recognizing Recovery Community Day at the Capitol. Randy Yowie talked to several in the recovery community who visited the legislature today. 
At the core of these statewide recovery resources on display are dedicated individuals like Lost Creek, West Virginia recovery coach Judy Utley. Here with her latest charges, Judy is 22 years clean and sober, saved by her faith and peer recovery support. I was in prison for a sh being a shoplifter. I smoked crack for 12 years. I lost custody of my child. Unfortunately, I now have custody of my grandkids. Among Bridge Valley students working toward an addiction counselor degree, highlighting peer-enabled recovery, is Noah Cruz, who's in recovery because of a past methamphetamine addiction. It just adds this uh, extra level of rapport, which is trust, between you and the client, and it really just makes the world difference because you feel like you can relate to them. They're not just someone above you. The statewide recovery clearinghouse, 844-HELP-4WB, is a 24-7 telephone helpline. With a third of its staffers in recovery, Help for WV forms a recovery resource bond with every caller. We don't just give a phone number and then it's done. Um, so we stay on the line with them until we can get them the help that they need. The new Southwest Virginia Collegiate Recovery Network joins 140 other such national groups which help college students in recovery get their degrees. It's the best kept secret in terms of uh, return on investment and support services to keep students in school. Noah and Judy agree grassroots recovery efforts won't work without networking resources like Jobs and Hope West Virginia, which is poised to take a budget cut in both the current House and Senate budgets. It takes a whole community to build a village. I mean, if, if there's not jobs available, the addict's going to go back to what they know, and that's robbing, stealing, and cheating. And these are the villagers of West Virginia's recovery community. I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Joining me now is the Interim Chancellor of the Higher Education Policy Commission. She's also Chancellor of the West Virginia Community and Technical College, Dr. Sarah Armstrong-Tucker. Thank you so much for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Um, now, let's continue that thread of the budget discussion mm -hmm. for a moment. Most immediately, both the House and Senate budget cut about $3 million from the West Virginia Invest. Now, that's the tuition assistance program passed last year for students attending the community and technical colleges in West Virginia. Talk about the uh, potential impact of that $3 million in, a, in what has been called a very successful program so far. So I don't predict there's going to be any impact, as a matter of fact. So what happened last year was that this program, West Virginia Invest, we, we predicted a budget of $7 million when the program was just extended to the community and technical colleges. Um, sort of towards the end of the session, um, they include, the legislature included baccalaureate institutions into that and said that the baccalaureate institutions who had associate degree programs could participate, but they could only charge the tuition rate of the community colleges. So when we budgeted what that increase would be, it was a $3 million increase. None of the baccalaureate institutions chose to participate except for Potomac State. So the legislature put in $3 million that they didn't ultimately end up needing to put in. Okay, well let's um, continue to um, talk uh, about the budgets as they are right now. It, the Community Technical College, the four-year institution, and the Higher Education Policy mm -hmm. Committee, or Commission rather. Um, currently is a flat budget, the same, same as what we're currently under. Um, the impact of that? 
I mean, we're thrilled that we have a flat budget. After years of budget cuts, considering um, what it could have considering been, considering what it could have been um, after years of budget cuts, it you know we we had the past couple of years, uh, particularly last year, had a lot of money infused into higher education, and so that that money is staying is really important to us. Um, that said, do we have needs that are being unmet on our campuses? Absolutely. There was discussion um, this legislative session about the possibility of passing uh, a bond for. Um, deferred maintenance on our campuses, and that's a conversation that I'm going to continue throughout this next year. It was an unsuccessful needs. conversation. Yes, it was. But we have significant needs on our campuses, uh, HVAC systems that are out, places that aren't ADA compliant, bathrooms that have problems, elevators that need that need to be fixed. And so those are conversations that we're going to need to really ramp up over the course of the next year. And, and you actually bring up uh, um, some areas that I discussed with uh, two college presidents last year, uh, the president of Concord College and the pe president of um, Fairmont State. And that is a lack of a funding formula. It's really hard, as you know, on the smaller campuses. Um, you know, the, the Higher Education Policy Commission was charged a couple years ago to propose a funding formula, formula for its four-year institutions, and it has been highly criticized for not doing so. Then we had the Governor's Blue Ribbon Commission that was to do the same thing, mm -hmm. and it stopped meeting more than a year ago, and we really haven't heard anything. I don't know if it exists, and I can't really get an answer um, about that. And so. Um, where is that funding formula situation for uh, four-year institutions and why haven't we gotten something proposed by the HEPC? Sure, so the HEPC did propose a funding formula. It actually came um, in front of the Legislative Oversight Committee on Education and Accountability. Um, it was not well liked amongst the four-year institutions. So they did propose one, but it, it wasn't widely supported. And so... And what wasn't liked about it? Uh, there were some concerns about the proposal not um, paying attention to institutions' uh, different missions, um, that there needed to be uh, mission differentiation in there, that it was too complicated, that people didn't understand it, um, that it wasn't predictable enough. And so in January of this year, I um, asked all the four-year presidents if they would join me at a meeting, and we sat down and we talked about the fact that the legislature is expecting a funding formula, and they want a funding formula that people can live with, um, at least you know, agree to. And so the four-year presidents committed and sent a letter to um, both of the education chairs um, committing to the process of working on a funding formula with me over the course of the next several months um, with the expectation that when I propose the budget, um, our budget for the next fiscal year, which will be sometime probably in October, but sometime this fall, it will be based upon a budget of funding formula that everyone can can live with. And so you believe you can do something that was tried and unsuccessful just recently? I, I believe that I can try very, very hard to do it. And I think we have, the difference now is that we have the commitment from the presidents in a way that we didn't have before. And so now that they seem to, to be on board, you know, do I think it's going to be a whole series of of easy rainbow conversations, probably not, but but I think that there's a commitment amongst them to really work together to try to come up with something that works for everybody. And and you know, if we're gonna be forthright, it's it's a very political issue. It is. Uh, yes. We've got very large schools, very small schools. Mm -hmm. Large schools with uh, with you know powerful lawmakers in their district and then then some that perhaps don't. 
correct? It, it, it's a very challenging, um, very dynamic situation. But again, um, even just as recently as today, we had a webinar today with several of the presidents talking through, okay, what could, what could some of these things look like? We had a webinar yesterday um, asking the same questions of folks. So we're making progress. Um, and I, I believe that the four-year institutions are committed in a way that they haven't been in the past. And, uh, and another area that obviously as, as interim um, you need to address, as you know, the institutions and lawmakers um, have you know, questioned the efficacy uh, of the Higher Education Policy Commission, the need, um, the, you know, the range of its um, governing powers. Mm -hmm. Uh, how, how do you, as, as the interim, how are you addressing that? So I, 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 would, I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't think that it was an important job to do and if I didn't think that there were important roles and responsibilities for the Higher Education Policy Commission. Um, over the course of the past several years, the legislature has really um, loosened up some of the governing um, aspects of the Policy Commission and pushed some of those out to the local governing boards. I think that that has eased quite a bit of the tension that's happening between institutions and the Policy Commission. Um, I have worked since They don't I, like the commission making decisions that they would rather be making for themselves. Correct. Um, and I have tried over the course of the past several months to look at the report, reporting requirements that we have for those institutions and say, do we really need this? Why am I collecting this information? Is this something that, that is important? Or is it something that isn't? And I've gotten rid of several several of those reports. But you know, the truth ultimately is that that, that there's taxpayer money involved, um, and so you know there has to be some level of accountability um, to the state, and there needs to be somebody at the state level who's looking out for the state's best interest, not just an individual institution's interest. I'd like to talk a about a couple of the bills that you've been following and mm -hmm. supporting. One of them, you know, it, particularly in this session, um, we have heard about uh, literally the thousands of children that are living with grandparents or are living with someone other than their custodial parent. Um, and, and there's a bill that you've been supporting, following, that helps children that are not per perhaps with their parents um, fill out what we call the FAFSA, which is the Federal um, Student Loan uh, information that needs to be uh, filled out in order to qualify for, for federal scholarships. Mm -hmm. um, tell us where this bill is and why it is so particularly important for students in West Virginia. So. Um Several months ago, I went and spoke at a high school um, in Boone County, and I had a conversation with their students about why they needed to go to college. At the end of that conversation, eight students came up to me and told me that they couldn't fill out their FAFSA because they lived in a family structure um, that wasn't with their biological or adopted parents. And that because they ask about fi your financial income, yes. your parents, what yes. they make, and they're trying Correct. to determine your need. Correct. And that becomes very difficult when you don't know where your parents are. Have access to your parents' financial mm -hmm. information. And if you're, let's say, you're living with your grandparents, if your grandparents haven't done anything to legally take responsibility for you, either custody or guardianship or adoption or whatever, um, the federal government won't count their W-2s in completing your FAFSA. So what, we, what, I, what we're finding is that we have this whole generation of students who's growing up who don't have their parents' info, and the federal government does not consider them uh, financially independent until they're 24. 
So they will, they will not be able to fill out a FAFSA until they're 24 years old. And there are some exceptions to that and some, some ways to get around it. Um, and I would urge any, anybody who is in this situation and listening to what I'm saying right now, please contact the, the college that your child or that you are interested in going to, and the college can help you get a waiver. Um, but it also precludes them from getting state aid because a lot of our state aid is dependent upon filing the FAFSA, West Virginia Invest, Promise, the Higher Education Grant Program, HEAPS. So um, uh, Delegate Chairman, Chairwoman Rowan proposed a bill that would help us um, have permission to get around some of those requirements so that we, we have some wiggle room for our students. And, and where is that bill, do you know? Um, I believe it is on second read right now, but I'm, I, I would have it's to... It's coming down it. to the wire. Yeah. And there's another bill that you've been uh, following that would establish a council for college attainment. What is that? Why is that needed? Sure. So West Virginia is one of uh, a few states in the country that doesn't actually have a post-secondary attainment goal that has been codified. Um, and we think that that's important. We think that it's important that people know that people that our residents need to get education and training beyond high school. Um, we know that our workforce um, by 2030 will require at least 60% of our residents to have post-secondary training. Only 34% of our residents do. Mm -hmm. And so we need to do something to get on this issue to make sure that we're able to sustain our workforce. Okay, and we have about a minute left. Other issues that uh, you're pursuing, other messages that you want to, to give to lawmakers as we enter the last couple days? <laughs> Um, I don't think so. I, I think this session has been has been pretty good to us, and I appreciate that that our budgets have been um, have been held flat. That's that was very important for our institutions. I look forward to looking uh, to working with with our legislators over the course of the next year, um, looking at this deferred maintenance issue that we have, and, and fulfilling our post secondary attainment goal. All right. Thank you so much, uh, you. Chancellor Sarah Tucker. Thank you so much for being here. Thank we appreciate you. it. And this concludes tonight's broadcast. Please join us again tomorrow as we continue to follow the action on several major bills as we enter the last few days of the 2020 session. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks and have a great evening.